Welcome to the Moving Up Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Wilson, CEO of the Wilson Group Real Estate Services, and my passion is creating success in people by sharing my experiences in real estate, entrepreneurship, and community involvement. My partner, Heather Wombrode, and I will be hearing from expert leaders in these spaces and giving you practical advice to help you accelerate your business. So pull up a seat because we are about to have a lot of fun. It's time for you to move up. Welcome everyone to the Moving Up Podcast. Today is going to be super special. I told our guest when she first got here that I was so nervous because she's such a neat person and this will probably be one of my top podcasts we've ever done. It's with great joy that I'm introducing Laurel Grafe with the Fed, the Federal Reserve, who's our guest today. Thank you so much, Christy. I'm so glad to be able to join you. I am so glad you're here and we've got tons of stuff to cover today. But before we get going, I just want to let everybody know that we're recording this on November 15th. This will be aired later in December. As we all know how the market is shifting, shucking and jiving, things could be very different when this actually goes out on the air. So just know today is November 15th when we're recording. Okay, so I've only known Laurel for a brief period of time, maybe a year and a half or so. Something like that. Yeah, and I've seen her speak at a variety of things. And I'm always going, this is the smartest woman I think I've ever met. And I would love just to get a little bit of history on you and then how you came to the Fed and what you do. So you could share that with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Christy. I grew up in rural Southwest Virginia. So a small farming community was always into math, but didn't really know a lot of folks who had office jobs or who lived anywhere out of the area where I grew up. So I ended up getting a scholarship. I think it was some sort of they needed some hillbilly diversity oh, quotient to meet at a small women's college in Atlanta called Agnes Scott and yeah. took an economics course to fulfill. I don't think I even knew what economics was. I took a course to fulfill some requirement and ended up realizing when everyone else hated the class and I was sitting in the front of the room starry eyed thinking, oh my gosh, you can use math to think about real world issues, that things started to really come together. So I realized, okay, this language of can you tackle and understand the sometimes emotional complex issues of the day that are often treated with a bunch of divisiveness and yucky feelings? Can you actually put a framework to thinking through them and actually work toward a solution using data and using a framework that, that for me personally, has been so helpful in just sorting out how to approach the world? That is so cool. So did you stay at Agnes Scott all four years? I stayed at Agnes Scott all four four years. I started at the Fed and have spent my entire career there, which it feels like the most unlikely thing on <laughs> earth, but have served in a whole bunch of different roles. And most recently, I moved up to Nashville in 2015 and now lead our presence here in Nashville. So my focus is on how can we help to bring Main Street perspectives and in some ways I think about non-traditional perspectives to the Fed's understanding of policy and understanding of what's happening on the eco- in the economy on the ground. So I spend a lot of my time, it's how you and I met Christy, out in the community, connecting with folks who maybe are experiencing something that shows up in the data, or maybe it's something that can get lost when you average out everyone's experience in the data. So here's a question. When you start at the Fed or maybe in college, because you are not what people would think a typical economist looks like or expresses herself. I mean, first of all, you are just stunningly beautiful. And when you speak, 
you can tell you have so much joy in your heart because so not only are you super smart, but you can just feel your passion for it and you make it really interesting. Does that just come naturally or do you have to take classes? Because when you think of most economists, you're like, oh, snoozer. But you're certainly <laughs> not. <laughs> well, well, I should say ditto. It's very clear every time I speak with you that you are in the place where you are doing most good in the world, Christy. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of talk today about bringing your whole self or authentic self to your work. And sometimes I can roll my eyes at that because... That can be true, but also it's helpful to have healthy boundaries. But I do think the part of authentic self that I really connect with is we can bring our joy and bring our caring to any space in our lives. And I think so often growing up, I thought that in order to have an impact on the world, oh, I have to work in a nonprofit or I have to kind of sit in this particular role, do certain sorts of work. And it has been so energizing to find that there's a lot of room actually for new voices and new approaches to doing work in spaces like the Fed, in a lot of policy rooms, in a lot of organizations that are kind of trying to understand how the world is evolving. So I think some of it has been a gift of the field opening up and some of it has been deliberate choice by me to try to go back to, you know, early in, in my career, it was easy to think, that in order to advance, I had to emulate the people I looked up to who, for the most part, looked a certain way and spoke a certain way. And it has been a really conscious and gratifying effort to recognize, hey, maybe executive presence can look like a dweeby gal and can have a high-pitched voice and can get <laughs> overly giggly and excited. Maybe that counts too. Maybe I can have a seat at the table. So even so being who are you way. talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so... At the Fed in Nashville, how many people does that employ? We have about five folks at the office regularly, although we do a lot of work across the state with kind of cross-functional matrix structure teams. The way we do our work has changed a lot recently. And you can imagine, you know, the Fed, in addition to the monetary policy, kind of understanding the economy work I do is also responsible for things like managing the payment system and managing the supply of physical cash in the economy and regulating and supervising the banking system. So there are a lot of folks who are out in the economy helping to facilitate those things who who aren't necessarily tied to coming into the office every day. Got it. So what does a typical day look like for you? Or is there a typical day? I feel like it's an easy out to say there is not a typical day, and there isn't, but I'll do my best. Yeah, okay. You know, there's some amount of internal strategy, work with my team, kind of thinking about how we can become more agile, more creative. Are there new sources of information or data that we should be opening up to that are maybe different than we usually look at? So spend some port 20% of the day thinking about how we do our work, how we can do our work better, how I can support my team. But the majority of my time is out in the community, whether it's sharing my perspectives and how we at the Atlanta Fed are thinking about what's happening in the economy. But I think the bulk of my time is actually listening, is going out and connecting with folks, whether it's business leaders, community leaders, folks in education, you know, people from all around the state, all different industries and firm sizes, to really get a sense of not just what's happening in the data, but most importantly, why and how are decision makers actually responding to that? Because there there are a lot of things that I think can get missed when you zoom out and just rely on traditional back-looking sources of information. So what is the Fed focused on right now? Gosh, if you can answer that. (laughs) Hands down, 
we are focused on inflation yeah. at the moment, which I threw is, that softball. That, <laughs> was, that was a big softball. And it would be a very wrong answer if I said anything, <laughs> said anything else. I mean, I think we need to be focused on inflation right now. And that's the part of the Fed's. The Fed has a dual mandate from Congress to balance strong employment and price stability. And I think we can all agree that at this moment, this does definitely does not feel like price stability. And the Fed is laser focused on doing what we can to alleviate that. Do you, I mean, clearly the numbers came out last week on inflation that for the real estate industry gave us a reason to cheer because it dropped the mortgage rates because the numbers were a little bit better. Do y'all feel, so do you feel like it's working? I feel hopeful. I think the most recent data were at least not a worse sign, but frankly, the softening in the most recent CPI numbers, a lot of that was a technicality and less a signal of really some meaningful slowing in inflation. So is it good news that we're not accelerating in the wrong direction? Yes. But do I feel confident that we have signals that momentum is really underway to get us back to price stability? I'm not really there yet, frankly. I would like to be. And what are the key indicators when you're looking at price stability? What are they actually looking at? When we define our metric for are we meeting price stability, the data we look at is the personal consumption expenditure price index. So it's essentially an index that looks at what are the price changes of the things that an average consumer in the U.S. buys. And that goes all the way from, you know, grocery items to healthcare, to housing, to haircuts. Gotcha. And hoping that averages 2% over the longer term. Although, of course, as with any statistics, there are a lot of flaws with that data. And so it's really important that we keep an eye on that. And I think it's an important rhetorical tool and explanatory tool for us to kind of be able to point to that and talk about that to the public. But certainly there are a lot of different cuts of price information. You, you are in the real estate space. We know for a long time, you can look out to the market and see housing costs were soaring. And that was not being reflected in its entirety in these statistics. And in similar ways, we're looking at commodity prices that haven't necessarily made their way yet to the consumer basket because you know the goods haven't yet been made and those prices haven't increased for consumers. Looking at things like inflation expectations of households, of business leaders, of forecasters. So there really is a big slew of data that each, I think, each are really important in playing a role in helping to kind of paint the mosaic of what's happening. And there are reasons why at times one might discount one more than the other, just depending on what's happening in the market. This may be a very stupid question. So if it is, I apologize. No such thing. No <laughs> well, such I don't thing. know. <laughs> you don't know me well yet. But So we, you're in the Nashville office. That's right. Do all major cities have their own uh, Fed office? They do not. So so the Fed, the structure and the location of the Fed offices was generally set in the early 1900s. And those decisions, as so many things can be, were based off of economic strength. They were based off of trans- transportation systems because th- back then there was a, most transactions were done in cash or checks and you needed to be able to put something on a train and get it to where it needed to go quickly. And it was also based on political power at the time. So you look at the location of the Federal Reserve's offices across the country, there's a very large concentration in the Northeast. And it makes sense because that's where a lot of the action was 110 years sure. ago. So there is an office in Memphis that kind of reports up through the St. Louis Fed. The Nashville office covers all of Middle and East Tennessee. And I collaborate with peers all across the Southeast and helping to understand the economy. 
Hi, I'm Harry Allen, co-founder and chief relationship officer of Studio Bank. Studio Bank is passionate about what our members create, and we're here to support you through the process. We provide capital and services to build businesses. We offer mortgage and home loan options, whether you're a first-time home buyer or purchasing your fifth home. We work with artists to reach their audiences. We help nonprofits transform our community. And often, the most important work we do is simply empowering individuals to pursue their dreams. We're here because what you create matters. Let's create something together. Visit studiobank.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender, NMLS number 176-1767. Are you more focused on Tennessee or, I mean, it is the Fed, so it's federal, or are y'all all the whole country? Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, my role is to bring a grassroots perspective from Tennessee. Okay. There's a reason I'm not in D.C. doing yeah. this work. And I think it's really important that we have... Fed leaders embedded in the community. I am not. I am not just flying in here to to put on a show and go back home somewhere else. But right. that we really have folks who are weighing into policy discussions, who are deeply engaged and connected, and truly a part of communities across the country. That said, we can't set a different interest rate for us in Nashville, for us in Tennessee, than the national rate. So it is understanding what's happening locally. And understanding what of that might be different than what's happening elsewhere in the country. Certainly, you you must feel this, that over the past decade, being in Nashville, I look out of my office window and we can still count cranes on the skyline. And I think it's important to understand that perspective and also recognize a lot of that growth is people moving from other places. It's headquarters relocating from other places. And so being able to both bring the perspective of the vibrancy we see here and also understand that that is not a uniform experience across the country and try to balance that is a bit of a balancing act. Right. It's interesting because so many of our agents at the Wilson Group have only been in the business probably for 10 years or less. And so they've never seen an interest rate drop. I've never seen a giant drop before. I mean, I've just sort of seen the bloop, bloop, bloop like that. And they've never seen prices come down. Because in 2012, we came just catapulting out of the recession. And the real estate market here just went nuts and it just has not slowed until literally four or five months ago. I feel like it's just a stabilization in the market. I feel, I mean, of course I, I hate the high interest rates because <laughs> it's just hard for that buyer who can't afford. Absolutely. I mean, we're a very expensive city and a very expensive region, but seeing a little bit of stability come back, I feel like is such a good thing. I couldn't agree more that I look at the market and living in Nashville, there is just something, even as a homeowner, where my you know personal equity in my home was looking really good over yeah. the past several years. There's just something that makes me feel really uncomfortable about the folks who work in our communities, the folks we need to teach our children and to kind of work really important roles to serve our communities being essentially priced out and not being able to fully participate, that doesn't feel great. And even while we were in the midst of it, there was always a, okay, there's got to be some rebalancing at some point because you want a market that's vibrant. You want a market that's growing. I think the 
population growth in the city and the strength in the housing market, those are all great things. But also a sense of predictability really matters. And I talk about this in terms of inflation a lot, but I think it's also true in terms of housing, that having some sense, some trust about where things will be a year from now or two years from now, so that you can make a housing choice not just based on a fear of missing out or a fear that if you ever want to be a homeowner in this neighborhood, you have to move now, versus what actually is right for your family and what's the timing that actually works best for you personally and what's happening in your life. That balance has felt pretty far off to yeah. me over the past several years. So I really agree that it is unfortunate that the, I mean, this feels like a real correction. We certainly have seen a decline in home sales that I know are kind of causing real frustration. And also we knew we weren't in a place that felt like balance before. And you've been with the Fed, you said 17 years. That's so right. you've been there a long time. I feel like right now we're just in a snippet of time. I look back when everyone was like wigging out during the recession. Oh my God, will this ever end? And we just kept marching along. I just remind people, you know, housing is not about how much money am I going to make on this house? So much of housing is shelter. If you have shelter and food, you're better than the majority of people, right? And right. so when people are buying that first home, getting married, getting divorced, a parent passes away, you have to sell their home, whatever the case may be, we have to remember that you still need shelter and life situations change daily. And so it's not always timing the market, but the approachability and the affordability to even get in is that's why I am so okay with this stabilization of the market, whether it's called a correction, stabilization, normalization, it was just time. And we couldn't keep up anymore. You know, at some point, it just... Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. And at some point, it, it does. The market started to feel a little bit dislocated from the actual need for housing. Totally. It seemed like there were other things. I mean, certainly, we know this was really popular in the Southeast, where there were kind of big institutional investors needing to kind of park some cash. So there were a lot of things happening in the market that started to feel like, okay, this is being driven by something other than necessarily households' needs for shelter in a particular community. Yeah. And some of that coming back into balance, I think, ultimately will be a healthy thing. I do too. I'm really curious right now because there are so many of the hedge funds and institutional buyers who are buying up, just scooping up all the first-time home buyer houses. Like if it was under 350 and it was built, what was it, before, I mean, after 1995, it was just gone. So it it put so many first-time home buyers to the sidelines. So it's going to be interesting to see what these guys do with that their investments too. I mean, that could open up if they start selling off a bit at a time. We'll see. Absolutely. Do you see any of what's taking shape right now impacting the rental market? Yes and no. So we own a we have a property management company here as well, and so our rents have steadily gone up. We don't do apartments. Ours are all duplexes, single family, triplexes and such. And so our rents have stayed steady and gone up. There's so many multifamily units under construction right now. I think for the apartments, it'll definitely take start bringing the rents down on the apartments because that's just plain old supply and demand. And it seems like we see that every 20 years or so. Everybody gets so exuberant on building. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Where is this demand coming from? You know, they could talk right. about we're underserving, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw something today or yesterday that we were way overbuilt. It's probably like you, you know, it's sifting through the data of what's real, what's not real. Moody's came out with their report saying that Nashville will drop 10 or percent. The headline was 20%. Then you get into the article, it's 10%. Right. Going maybe doubtful. I think it's doubtful 10%. But then you look at, okay, we appreciated basically 50% since 2019. 
So if you have a home that's now worth a million dollars, but really it's worth 800,000 and it drops 80,000, I mean, 100,000, you're still 900,000 and not 800,000. Right. I mean, you've still right. gone right. There's up some room a for a lot of, I, I think it's that. I am a macroeconomist by training and the Fed's work is on a kind of very zoomed out scale. I think it is so important for policymakers and folks in roles like mine to be sure we don't get too caught in talking about people and homeowners or home buyers as just numbers. Yeah. Because it can be true that as I zoom out and look at the national economy, a stabilization is healthy. And also that means there's someone who bought a home last year that's going to feel stuck yeah. in their home because they bought it at a million at the- and now it's worth 900. Yeah. And there are folks who are seeing the high interest rates and they thought the payments could make sense. And just with the higher interest yeah. rates, suddenly that equation becomes a lot harder. So so I try to balance those two things. There are real human beings experiencing pain and discomfort at all times in the economy. Even when the economy's good, because it, it doesn't work for everybody. But let me put a little caveat in there. I did not say market's coming down 10%. I was just putting <laughs> yeah. Moody's. Yes. I think we're going to be just fine. I mean, I am the eternal optimist, but even if it did come down that much in the grand scheme of things, after a 50% appreciation run, it's not that bad. But I don't think we're going to drop 10%. Yeah, I so, saw that report too, and it surprised I me. Mean, it seems like a pretty bold. Prediction. It was very bold, and the number of emails I got on it, I was going, "Whoa, whoa, whoa let's read the whole article and yep. <laughs> check it out." So, well, Heather, do you have any questions for Laurel? I am just fascinated. I'm fascinated by what you do, um, and I'm very appreciative. I did not realize the localization that was happening of you being in Nashville. It makes me feel a little bit better knowing that it's not someone flying in from you know, let's say DC, and just kind of giving their opinion and then hopping on the next flight. So I love that you're here and that you're actually kind of boots on the ground and talking with people and able to then report back. Um, I had no idea. I guess that's the ignorance on my part. No, not at all. No, I had no idea. So that that really makes me feel a lot better. Well, I think that's on me and my team to do a better job of telling that story too. I was reflecting on this the other day. I think there is a really common narrative in this country sometimes about policymakers being kind of others. And sure, and sure. in I think in all regards policymakers should be and I hope are in service to our communities. And so the more we can if we need to change our work or tell different stories or whatever that needs to look like to be sure we are connected to and actually hearing from folks who are experiencing this country and driving our communities, I think the better we'll all be for that. Yeah. And I think one thing to remember too, on just on the real estate front is, and Heather's heard me say this before, there's not a ticker tape with your real estate values going across the bottom of your TV when you're watching a financial news show, right? I mean, that's stocks, that's whatever. Real estate for the most part is somewhat of a long haul. I mean, that's I right. invest in real estate. I love real estate, but I hold my real estate too. I don't sell much of what I buy. And when you start commoditizing real estate, that's sort of a slippery slope too, because it is shelter. And if it's your investment property, it's still shelter for somebody. you know. And I know people have different ways that they do their real estate. There's a thousand ways to skin the cat and that. But for the average homeowner, it's your family, it's your shelter, it's just where you're going to be. But life circumstances I get happen. Bad circumstances happen. I never want to see anybody in a negative situation. But it's all going to be okay. Yep. And I mean, I look back at the recession, that just feels like such a blip 
on the radar from way back when. So whatever's about to happen now, which is my question for you, what do you think's next? <laughs> what do you see for 2023, Laurel? Gosh, well, I will say my crystal ball is especially foggy right now. Because <laughs> it's so cloudy outside. It's so cloudy right now. <laughs> Hopefully not when the podcast airs. Look, interest rates are not high enough to bring demand back into balance with supply. And so I expect there to continue to be moves on that path until we see that. So I'm I am expecting next year us the economy is going to see some more solid figures that suggest okay, we're we are moving back solidly in the direction of of price stability. And I think unfortunately the avenue through which interest rates work, I mean as we are certainly seeing in the real estate sector, specifically in the residential sector is by dampening demand. And so there's likely to be a continued impact on kind of demand softening, whether that's on from a real estate perspective, a consumer perspective, demand for workers. Right now, I think a lot of what we're seeing in the inflation numbers is actually goods inflation has really started to moderate. But we continue to see inflation on the services side accelerate. And as we know, the biggest input if you're a service provider is labor. Mm -hmm. And so helping the economy move a bit back more into balance where the number of folks looking for work more closely matches the number of jobs available, I think is really critical to get us to a point where wage growth comes back into balance, inflation comes back into balance. I think, unfortunately, it means there is likely to be more of a demand pullback than we've seen. But my hope is that gets us on a track as we move into the latter portion of next year, where it feels like okay, we all trust that prices are going to be a bit more stable. We have less uncertainty as we're planning for our households or for our businesses. And it feels like we're finally in a place where we have a bit of a clearer path forward as community members. Wow, that was great. So, well, well, now uh, we have to just cross our fingers that and hope that's yeah. the case. <laughs> Hunger down 2023. But be smart. I mean, you know, you just you've got to be smart. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Just be smart. Live your life, but live your life smartly. It's wild to me how much when I'm out in the community talking with business leaders in particular, there is both the perspective that, okay, it's time to to be sure we're running lean. It's time to kind of be sure we're looking at our business model and are ready to weather something that might be a little bumpy. And also, this is the time that there are going to be deals out there. This is when there will be opportunities. It's often in moments like this, it's so easy. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. But you look back at the periods when there were new businesses that entered and yeah. ended up really filling big holes, when investors were able to take risks and really got in on the ground floor with some really amazing opportunities. They often happen in times of great uncertainty like this. So I'm hearing a lot of firms both proceeding with caution and also wanting to be ready to jump in and potentially take some risks after, gosh, I can't remember the last time early 20-teens when firms were saying, yeah, there are really good deals out there still. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, there has been, whether it's in terms of the cost to buy a business, the cost of buying commercial, residential property, land, all of that has continued to appreciate almost without rest. And certainly that's been the case for us here in Middle Tennessee for a decade now. Yeah. And so I think there's also uncertainty is uncomfortable. And we're all, I think we all share that, but it also comes, I think, with its own really important opportunities. That's right. That's right. That is a great way to wrap up this show, yeah. too. I just, 
I cannot tell you how appreciative we are. And I know our listeners are too, very appreciative of hearing what you've had to say today. We can't wait to hear what the Fed says in December for real and throughout the year. And so all I know for Heather and I, we just get up every day and Go shake some trees, get after it, and make right. something happen. You know, and I love it. We need you. <laughs> we need you to do that. Thank I you for stop. doing that. Don't stop. <laughs> Thank you Thank so much, you for, having so much me. for being on. Okay, everybody, if you have any questions or any ideas that you want us to cover in any of our podcasts, please email us at podcast at wilsongroupralestate.com. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you got as much out of it as we did. Have a great day. Recognized as a nationally ranked top 150 accounting firm, Alexander Thompson Arnold CPAs serves Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Mississippi by providing accounting, tax, and consulting services for clients ranging from small to medium-sized businesses. ATA offers several services other than traditional accounting to the Nashville area, such as technology solutions, litigation support, business valuations, marketing strategies, HR consulting, retirement plans, and third-party administration. Contact ATA partner David Hart by calling 615-662-2727 or visit them online at atacpa.net. Hey, if you're loving the show, go find that little follow button on your podcast app. This will ensure you won't miss a single episode. Until next time.